right now in my neighborhood, justice is if you own a business, you can park as many cars on the grass as you want. But if you're the resident who lives across the street and you park one car on the grass, you get a $100 fine while the business is exempt from any fines, nothing can happen to them, even though the laws are written the same way for both types of parcels. Um, our median income is about 21,000 a year. And so that $100 fine can be 15% of somebody's income for the month. Welcome back to this week's episode of Neighboring Podcast. We're in episode four of our What Makes a Healthy Neighborhood Healthy discussion. And we're here today with Arlene and Jim, longtime residents and active leaders in the Hoagland Masterson neighborhood. And we're really excited to hear from them uh, to learn about a bit more about Hoagland Masterson. It's a downtown kind of collar neighborhood. It's got its challenges. Uh, there's committed neighbors like these two that are have been working tirelessly for the last couple of years and uh, certainly pushing a, a boulder uphill most of the time, it seems like, based on our previous discussions. So this is a really exciting discussion because this is kind of one of the first discussions of the five neighborhoods that we're discussing that has, has had some challenges. And it's not growing, developing, all exciting, but there is. There's a lot of like really good things. It's just at maybe a different volume than the other neighborhoods. So I'm excited to have this discussion and have an honest discussion about um, not all development is good development or some of us miss the development that other neighborhoods are getting. So what does that mean? And how do we, how do we address or work, work forward through that? So welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, uh, to be here. Would love for you guys to introduce yourselves. Um, how long have you been lived in the neighborhood? How did you find Hoagland Masterson? So Arlene, would you kick us off, introduce yourself uh, when you came to, to Hoagland Masterson and kind of what attracted you in the first place? Um, I've lived in Hoagland Masterson since 2013 and it's been a lifelong dream to renovate a Victorian house and there's one there for me. Uh, my boyfriend had looked at it um, a year and a half maybe before I bought it and he tried to look at it, but his agent said she wouldn't show anybody a house in that kind of a neighborhood, so he never got to walk through it. Um, when I actually did get to buy it, my own insurance agent, instead of insuring it, he yelled at me and told me to find another agent. Wow. So um, the house I bought had been empty for four years, and it needed a lot of work before I could move into it. That's a common... Uh, we hear that a lot. That's a very common kind of situation uh, in our particular area. Maybe it's starting to change the last couple of years, but uh, it, it isn't uncommon for realtors that don't have a lot of context for historic neighborhoods or uh, even certain parts of town they're uncomfortable with. They just kind of take the reputation and kind of refuse to take their, mm -hmm. their folks through. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting mm -hmm. to think about, but it's not a common experience uncommon experience from what I'm learning no, that was part yeah of I would I would echo that it's somewhat skewed against our type of neighborhood mm -hmm. both the real estate and the insurance and the banking uh, would rather operate in other areas yeah so uh you think you would just want to want to sell a house or uh, meet your customers demands um, yeah certain things. yeah I would say most properties sell until probably recently with electric works going in, just sell person to person, mm -hmm. wow. no realtor, no bank, mm -hmm. cash, cash transactions, fill out the paperwork yourself and take her downtown. Wow. 
So Jim, introduce yourself. How how long have you been in Hoka Master and how'd you find find that neighborhood? Uh yeah, Jim Obergfell. Uh we've been there about ten years, I would say. We came a different route. We have a property over on Rudisol and Harrison. Uh, but our daughter and her her husband are in the military, and uh, she was looking at a place that she could call home in a worst case scenario if uh, her husband would have, you know, heaven forbid, uh, some issue in, in Afghanistan when he was assigned there. So she picked this place out off the internet and came and purchased it in 30 days when they were on leave. So as they left, they asked us to take care of it. So after a little bit of perplexed thoughts on how to handle that, we decided to move in. So that's how we showed up in Hilgland Masterson. All right. So uh, that's our story. And since we've been here, we have acquired some vacant lots and other properties. So we're, we're invested in the neighborhood now yeah. and happy to be there. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for uh, for that. I don't think I, I knew that about how you guys first found yourselves in Hoagland Masterson. Yeah, we had no intention of uh, being here, but uh, here we are. You got there and you were <laughs> as, involved. As Aaron Rodgers' insurance agent said, and yet here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm familiar with Hoagland Masterson just because it's across the street from the neighborhood um, that I live in in Williams Woodland. But for our audience or other individuals that, that don't know much about Hogan Masterson. Can you guys uh, try to paint paint a picture? Can tell us about Hogan Masterson? What's the geography like? Where's it located? What's the housing look like? So, if you were trying to describe to a new person coming to Fort Wayne, describe, try to paint a picture of what, where, and what Hogan Masterson's like. Maybe you guys can split that up. Yeah, uh, Hogan Masterson is just south of the railroad tracks, so it. Uh, falls into the category in air quotes south of the tracks. Uh, it is I south of downtown. Downtown, right? correct. Yeah, we're probably about quarter mile, maybe from the ball stadium straight through. Okay, you have to go around a bit to get get under the underpass there. But uh, so we're in a good location with all the downtown development, uh, and now with the electric works coming on. So that's that's uh, very positive. But the neighborhood itself goes back to the early 1900s. And as the industrial era was really blossoming here at that time, our neighborhood was a working class neighborhood. Uh, so people that were working in the industry located around the railroad tracks, which is not there now. Sure. But at that time, it was a, a very industrialized area in town. Uh, these people... Uh, moved to this neighborhood, built tiny houses on small lots, and walked to work. So that's kind of the origin of the neighborhood itself. Now there are some larger lots and some nicer houses, uh, but by and large they're, they're smaller places uh, uh, due to the, the demographic when they were founded. So a lot of working class housing. Yeah, you know, fifteen hundred square feet, bigger or less, mostly. Well, it's it's interesting. A lot of the houses I've noticed it once I figured it out were probably started out about seven hundred square feet. Okay. And were added onto, which was the custom in the day, rather than moving to the suburb yeah. as you got more resources and more established, that they would add onto their house rather than move away. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
And I would say probably of the smaller houses, that probably at least 30 to 40% that I've noticed fit that category. Kind of smaller than build on? Correct. Okay. Correct. Interesting. I don't know that I've, I've really picked up or noticed, but that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And there are some, some bigger scale uh, homes, like you mentioned, in those areas with some details and mm -hmm. certain streets and different pockets. There's a lot. Uh, Arlene, do you have anything to add from you? You are like one of the most in-depth researchers that I know that are living in the neighborhood. And it's, a, it's vital um, to know the story and the history. I'm curious if you have anything to add about Hogan Masterson and kind of painting that picture. Uh, some of our houses were built as early as the 1860s. Oh, wow. um, and I think there's some from the 80, 1980s or 90s. I think we've got two that are pretty modern. Mm -hmm. um, there's some habitat houses that would fit that. Yeah, that yeah. Yes. And originally the houses were really, really close together. Like you could spit in your neighbor's house from your own house if the windows lined up right. Mm -hmm. um, through the years, a lot of them have been torn down because they, they just weren't maintained and had to be removed. So we've got we've got a lot of gaps between houses and because they didn't start off with a nice big lot <clears throat> or a yard, you could buy the lot next to you and add to it and increase the value of your house. Mm -hmm. um, the houses aren't terribly well maintained. We're about 60% rentals. Um, we have 120 to 150 landowners, but nobody's terribly well off in the neighborhood, so they just do the best they can. Um, a lot of them have siding on them. They haven't retained their historic characteristics. Do you guys have historic like uh, designation in terms of like protecting certain aspects, like some uh, some other historic neighborhoods? I believe there's a few houses yeah. that have historical designation, which mandates certain types of external reconstructions and repairs. Yes. Yeah. But by and large, it's not. Yeah. There's an area on Calhoun that is part of Williams Woodlands Historic District. On Creighton, a, yes. Yeah, and there's a house on Dewald that is a local historic district, the Grace Crosby House. <coughs> okay. She was a local architect. All right. So, Hoagland Masterson's always been somewhat of a working class neighborhood, like it was founded and developed by a working class. And uh, driving through there now, you know, Neighborhoods in, in 100 years kind of ebb and flow with the economy, but there, Hogan Mastin has definitely been hit harder by, by the economy than maybe than some others. And maybe, how long ago, there's been a lot of blight elimination like you've talked about. About how long ago did like that blight elimination really come through and, and clear out a lot of property? You remember? Well, I mean, it's ongoing now. Sure. Uh, some of it's happened before I got there, so it probably goes back at least 15, 20 years, I would guess. Mm -hmm. And when I became the president in 2016, um, I worked with neighborhood, I think neighborhood code compliance to point out some of the eligible houses for blight elimination. So how long have you guys been involved in like neighborhood leadership? Let's talk about like some of the challenges that you guys have faced. So uh, very active neighbors desire to have the best neighborhood for yourselves, for your neighbors choose to take leadership like like many do, but I know that's been somewhat of a struggle for you guys. Can you guys share what it's been like um, being a leader in the neighborhood and trying to get other neighbors to, to get involved? Yeah, I've probably been involved maybe eight of the 10 years, I would think. Uh, it is difficult. It's, uh, it's, you hit it right on the head. It's like pushing a rock uphill in a lot of ways. Um, 
and we could probably philosophize on that for for quite a while. I'm not sh really sure what the answer is. It's not the difficulty with community building and that type of thing is not only in our neighborhood, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, every neighborhood fights that, but as we're a little bit lower on the economic strata, uh, it might be even an added degree of difficulty beyond what you know, our culture is kind of settled on right now as far as community involvement and those types of things. But uh, it's, it's definitely a, a challenge to getting people involved, uh, people to help out, paying dues, any kind of thing that just help push, push the neighborhood in the right direction. Sure. That's a result of about 30 years of political neglect because for those 30 years, the people that lived there, if they did something to try to improve their neighborhood, they were the subject of enforcement of minutia, while the people who were destroying the neighborhood, the deadbeats <clears throat> and criminals, there was no enforcement against them. But if you stuck your head out, you got kicked. Mm. And we're still dealing with that legacy. Do you have like a particular example where there was a group of neighbors that tried to enact a change or were trying to work something where they kind of met some resistance? Not on the group level, but if you're the little homeowner and there's something wrong with your house, you will be cited for it. But if you live next to a slum and there's a drug dealer selling drugs off the front steps, well, there's nothing we can do about that. Sorry. They don't get... Their slums aren't really. Yeah, I would I would add that there's a little bit of protection for the corporations, the rental people. They they're considered investors. Okay. We wouldn't want to hurt the investors. So so in a way, you know that skews it a bit. Uh, drug enforcement and crime enforcement are, in my opinion, they travel slower. Uh, because they have to build a court case in most cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, where code enforcement can act very quickly because all they got to do is fill out some forms and send it to you. Yeah. So it's a little different dynamic, but it does play out in that way. The neighborhoods feel, in in a lot of cases, that uh, the other guys get away with all kinds of crap, and then mm -hmm. they get pounded for little things. Okay. So you're picking up on a lot of conversations of, of homeowners mm -hmm. that are living there, trying to maintain the property, invest, live the life, the quality of life that they want or deserve, mm -hmm. uh, recognizing some neighbors around them that are either A, not taking care of their properties in the same way due to lack of interest or they're, they're not, they're, they're a tenant or whatever the, the issues are, or they're living next to some sort of um, crime riddled or, or drug related property, trying to, trying to do what's right and meet, met with resistance or lack of lack of compassion or mm -hmm. met with a, a broken system that doesn't bring bring solutions quick enough. Yeah, and I, I don't know if I would call the system broken. Mm. It's just a complicated problem. Yeah. And there's a lot of individuals and agencies uh, trying to navigate mm -hmm. it and it's it but it's very complicated. I mean to to bring resolution and as I say we could talk about it for hours. I don't have solutions that I can, you know, lay out there and say, hey, if we did this and this and this, everything would be fine. Sure. It, but it is a complicated socioeconomic problem that uh, that exists. Well, I think your challenge is, the challenge is, these challenges and some others we'd love to hear about 
are common in, in so many neighborhoods um, like yourselves who are full of neighbors that are trying to do what is right and the, the processes that are put in front of them uh, and for whatever reason just not feel like they're making any progress mm -hmm. and how defeating that is you know you try once you try twice maybe you try a third time and you feel like you, you're not making it and then you multiply that by a number of neighbors mm -hmm. and then here you have our neighborhood association that's encouraging neighbors to keep going with this and it's like yeah but that doesn't work so what what do we do with that mm -hmm. um, i think that's a that is a more common common issue than 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 most people think or are aware of mm -hmm. especially in a lot of our neighborhoods in Fort Wayne when I first became the president of the association in 2016, I tried to address a lot of the problems head on and I got laughed at and I was told, oh, there's a socioeconomic problem there, as if that's the reason we cannot have nice things. Um, I got patted on the head and sent on my way without receiving any help and sometimes I just got laughed at outright. Oh, that's disappointing. What are some other... What are some other challenges that you guys are, have faced that, that seems seems been to be challenging? Um, you shared a f quite a few. I'd be curious to know whether you have uh, some additional thoughts on that. Like, um, what does justice look like or not look like uh, in neighborhoods? Right now in my neighborhood, justice is if you own a business, you can park as many cars on the grass as you want. But if you're the resident who lives across the street and you park one car on the grass, you get a $100 fine while the business is exempt from any fines, nothing can happen to them, even though the laws are written the same way for both types of parcels. Um, our median income is about 21,000 a year. And so that $100 fine can be 15% of somebody's income for the month. A lot, a lot of my neighbors are disabled. We yeah. share a, um, a census tract with Poplar neighborhood where 60% of the residents are on disability. Yeah. Trying to live on eight hundred to twelve hundred bucks a month. Six hundred and sixty. Yeah, it's yeah, that's, that's usually a, what my neighbors get. Yeah, that's a difficult scenario. That's almost them. impossible. Yeah, and and to expect them to be able to fight for their own rights, it, it's really asking mm -hmm. too much because they're struggling to get by. Correct. They've got a really hard life. And one of the things I think I I believe our neighborhood is really on a positive trend, but. I believe that's because when we started the association, we started to uh, squeak a little bit. And unfortunately, in my opinion, governmental agencies only respond to a squeaky wheel. Yeah. So without representation, even though it's pushing a rock up the hill, mm -hmm. uh, or, or without any representation, the neighborhood tended to go the wrong direction. I mean, the curbs didn't get fixed a lot of times and uh, issues like that type that you would think would spread out fairly across the governmental yeah. area, in my opinion, seemed to go to where most of the money was, where the organized neighborhood associations mm -hmm. were. Uh, they knew how to fill out the forms. They knew mm -hmm. who to talk to. They could call in a favor from somebody that's in there. Sure and get things to happen at the expense of neighborhoods mm -hmm. that were not represented and not squeaking, yeah. for lack of a better word. Um, and I think we've been able to reverse a little of that um, just by being present at the table 
in trying to figure out how a lot of this stuff works. So I, I agree. If you listen to uh, Kay, who's the, the president of the North Highlands neighborhood, I mean, they had some pretty significant infrastructure issues, and she talks pretty clearly about like how unified they had to be and how, how, how unified, how educated they needed to be on, on the particular issues. They were leveraging some strengths of some of the neighbors who could really make a case with, with government to deal with some infrastructure, and, and they just were very persistent and, and made a yes. huge difference. Yes, and, that, and I would agree that that's, yeah. that's the way it would work. Where in a perfect world, you would think all the neighborhoods yeah. would get their fair share. Sure. It just doesn't seem to be the reality of how it works. Uh, I remember a handful of years ago where you guys were, were, I would say, relatively successful, especially having a history you know, beforehand in that area when the major you know, company was um, trying to move a bigger development project that didn't quite make sense on the edge of the neighborhood, the power company, mm. trying to build the, yep. build the substation. And there's a lot of case that the many of you neighbors and some adjacent neighbors were really kind of pushing back. And while um, maybe it didn't kind of end up in the way that, that it made, there were some modifications that were, were made to, to make it work. Yes. And I saw like a lot more engagement on that companies of saying, okay, like, oh, we should we should probably just have these discussions and we got to respond to that. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if, you, if there's anything to add to that project. Um, yeah, we did. Uh, I mean, we did get some nice uh, shielding or facade put on the on the substation. Um, it was it was an uphill battle again. And uh, the city, I felt the city and the power company had worked a deal. Um, and then we accidentally found out about it and started to squawk and we had to fight through the inertia that had already been created. Um, and we were somewhat successful, yeah. but, uh, yeah, yeah, but it, it takes some energy. I think if we had not, uh, stood up, we'd uh, had just a regular sub substation and with chain link fence around it. And yeah on the edge of our neighborhood so they were going to put razor wire around the top of it mm -hmm. sure and i asked if i would be able to put that around my yard <laughs> no no <laughs> yeah. no but i think in retrospect the the deal the location everything had already been yeah worked out behind the scenes and then we found out about it and then they invited our input but everything was mostly already decided sure um but we did we did make some gains. I, I have to tip my hat to uh, to AEP for what they what they did do. Yeah. I mean, in the end, they ended up being a good neighbor uh, mm -hmm. within the constraints that had already been established. And, yeah. Uh, it was it was a good good win for us. So you guys have done been tireless working on these things. There's lots of challenges. What are some of the things that you feel like uh, besides maybe that AEP project um, that have gone well, or where do you sense some momentum happening? in Hoagland Masterson, do you sense any momentum? Um, our sidewalks were fixed. Okay. Um, the mayor fixed our sidewalks, and I had described <clears throat> an elderly woman who had a leg amputated being pushed in the street by her grandchildren for her afternoon walks because the sidewalks were not passable. They couldn't have pushed her chair over our sidewalks, and he fixed our sidewalks, and it kind of surprised the whole neighborhood. It did. Yeah, and it really showed them, well, maybe we but, do matter. But but again, that was strategic because we had recently been declared, 
the most walkable neighborhood mm-hmm. in Fort Wayne. And as we, as Arlene primarily started to make a squawk, come look at our walkable sidewalk. Uh, there was just a little bit of leverage that they had created yeah. by their publicity right. that we were a walkable neighborhood. And it, it worked out again in our favor. But if if we hadn't had representation, if our, Arlene hadn't been on the ball and taken advantage of that kink in their armor, so to speak, that it, sure. it might not have happened. But there can be a big difference between uh, walkability scores that are generated via an online platform yeah. and yep. reality. And the reality yeah. of it, correct. Um, Absolutely. And we can we all stop short. Like we can get an we can get an article, we can do something, or we can think we're heading in the right direction, but have we really done the research? So good job on that. Mm-hmm. Are there some other momentum? Uh, we've talked with some of the the other neighborhoods. Um, this Electric Works major development project in Fort Wayne is happening not too far away from our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Are you starting to see any sort of speculative uh, impact of that? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think uh, I think people are starting to starting to purchase with that in uh, in the view that something's on the upswing. So I, I would agree. I think I think it's it's affecting our neighborhood. Yeah, houses going on the market now are going at about twice the price they did two years ago. Yeah. Um, the good news is there's plenty of investors in the neighborhood. We're 60% rentals, and our landowners are very resilient. They, they're they old, long-term families. They were here when it was a nice neighborhood. They saw it go downhill, and as we start to go back uphill, I think they'll be fine for a while. Um, what sort of concerns do you guys have in terms of like that um, speculation? Do you have any concerns or like what are you welcoming or, you know, really trying to protect I'm, against? I'm worried about my neighbors not being able to pay their property taxes. Um, when your income's 660 a month, yeah. uh, the difference between a $200 tax bill and a $1,000 tax bill is <clears throat> crushing. Sure. I've I've been squawking about it. I've been mm-hmm. squeaking and pointing this out that you know, these people have sometimes lived in their houses for generations, and we shouldn't be so quick to kick them out. Yeah. Because they can't afford their taxes. Interesting. Yeah, I would I would add that the investors and speculators, by definition, are primarily interested in in their financial gain, which yep. that's the system we live in, and it's understandable. But the gentrification that's going to follow will put stress on the non-gentrified neighbors mm-hmm. that remain through taxes or increased neighborhood code violations and things yeah. that are going to come with that as these investors want this neighborhood to come up will put some kind of stress on those that aren't in that economic status. So, and that's one of the things that concerns me. Uh, How you deal with that again, I don't know, but I I can see that happening. Yeah, it seems like Hoga Masterson is, you know, three to five years away from just like being completely redeveloped in a a way, right? Mm Like it's such proximity to downtown development. If real estate is really, um, moving downtown like they say it is. Not everybody wants a condo or an apartment. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, homes in 807 and 805 rarely stay on the market. So there's this resurgent back to the central core, and there are there is a market for 
turnkey move-in ready houses for you know middle-class educated individuals and it's going to be really hard to not see that kind of move into Hovland Masterson due to one the opportunities mm-hmm. uh, and the vacancy and like you know some of the the vacant lots and mm-hmm. if you can buy a house for low that needs yeah. that's vacant and renovate and tear down and put something else you can start stringing three and four homes together yeah. so it's really interesting to see especially with Williams Woodland just to the south mm-hmm. who were kind of um, expanding at our seams and wondering where development is going to go there or are we yeah. just going to keep building an island in our, yeah. in our own little island. No, something's going to happen. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what it'll be, but that scenario certainly is plausible that uh, uh, these houses would be purchased and fixed up to a certain extent. Obviously, they're not quite as, a lot of them as historic and, sure. and have all the character of some of the Williams Woodland Park yeah. homes, of course, but uh, um, it'll be interesting to see how this how this plans out or plays out in the future. What are some of uh, what's what's some of the vision you guys have? You've been working in the neighborhood for a while. You've uh, documented you know the neighborhood better than than most, other than maybe some of those people who have lived there for 30, 40 years or mm-hmm. multiple generations. Curious what what are some ideas and visions that you guys have for the neighborhood? Like if you could kind of plan out the next five years, what are some of those ideas? You know, for me, I would like to see younger owner occupiers mm-hmm. purchase or acquire properties that are rentals and kind of take ownership and, and fix them up and stake a claim and, and and make a commitment to be there for you know a period of time um, I think part of the, the issues we struggled with is people are transient not only in our neighborhood mm-hmm. but yeah. all over yeah uh, and maybe more so in ours because of the rental nature and, and some of that thing. So it, it's hard to establish community when things are transient. Yeah. And people are coming and going and you get to know somebody and six months later they're gone. And it just takes time to establish relationships. Uh, so I think I would welcome, again, how this would ever happen. It probably would just be the Lord's doing it if it does. But... For people to make some kind of commitment, say, "Hey, this is uh, this is a little gritty place, but uh, maybe I could move in and make a difference and uh, and do something to help help this neighborhood along." Yeah, Arlene, do you have some thoughts? What's your vision? Um, I just want to help my struggling neighbors to do a little bit better. Yeah, and I want to help the good people to live their good lives. Yeah, make make it easier for them. That's great. Yeah, and neighbor like we see so many of the same same neighbors and. We, we try to do the best we can in Hogan Mashton in terms of mobilizing some volunteers, but uh, we really are, are burdened by the reality of so many people living on a fixed income that just don't have the resources to mm-hmm. live independently. Sure. And their, their housing alternatives are all but non-existent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we would love to create some sort of program that helps people transition of like, when you hit that point in your life where your your asset, your home is no longer, is is at its greatest value, mm-hmm. you retire, you move toward disability, whatever it is, your asset's not gonna improve any more than what it is now. So what does it look like to help you transition to a place while you can get the most out of your asset uh, to live that quality of life that, that, is, that is gonna be for your, your next life? Uh, that transition point doesn't exist, especially when you factor in like, this is my home, it's paid off, like mm-hmm. why would I ever leave? Like yeah. you can't. 
Well, here you can make a case and maybe you can help a percentage, but you have to be able to provide them with something that's as as good, if not better than what they already have. Mm -hmm. And would love to see some of that, that happen. There's, it's a huge need. But until that time happens, whatever that solution is, how do we, how do we care for, mm -hmm. for the vulnerable in our neighborhoods that can live, continue to live independently, but are going to definitely be impacted either by the current status of their home or the impact of potential gentrification in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's really challenging. Yeah. No, it's a, that's a difficult, it's a difficult situation. Most people have a way of getting by. Yeah. So, I mean, things get rough or yeah. tighten up. They somehow get by. Sure. Whether the house doesn't get painted or the porch is falling through or something, but they're, they're still struggling through it and making it happen. So, What would you guys say are some of uh, Hoga Masterson's strengths? Our neighbors are very resilient. Okay. Um, they're good at hard times. Mm -hmm. How do you feel like that plays out? Mm. How have you seen that happen? They don't get overly upset with a bad situation. They just deal with it. Okay. They don't throw a tantrum. Doesn't do any good. They just mm -hmm. get to work and deal with it. And I, yeah. I try to meet them where they are mm. and help them in the moment. Sure. Interesting. Jim, what do you feel like is one of the, the strengths you see? Yeah, I, I do. I think the people that, and, and we do, we have a fair amount that have been there for years and years. I mean, I'm thinking like Tommy's. His family's he's, been there since 1936. Yeah, I think wow. Tommy was born in the neighborhood, and he's he's still there in the old homestead. And, and, and people like that, they're just, they're they're solid. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's good. They're good neighbors, and they, they look out for each other. And uh, um, it's not the fanciest house around, but he, you know, just good good people. Mm -hmm. So, what uh, is there anything you would like to share? We haven't talked about. Not all renters are bad renters. There are renters in my neighborhood who have bought the vacant lot next to their rental, wow. so that their kids have a yard to play in. What makes some of them good renters? Just They've chosen a rental lifestyle, but they're active in the neighborhood, obviously, if they're willing to invest in the vacant yard yeah. next to them, right? Yeah. Um, they're not transient. They're, they're pretty much there to stay. Mm -hmm. Their fam a lot of them have family there. We're, what you don't see is this is a family neighborhood. We have many, many, many families who have lived there for generations. I can think of probably seven that have been there for generations. Um, and... You don't see that because you're driving past on a corridor with unkempt businesses and slummy houses sometimes or, you know, the, the drugs end up in the block closest to the corridors because you can just pop in off the corridor and yeah. get your drugs and go. Sure. Um, but nobody stops and sees that this is a neighborhood of good old families who have lived here for a long time. Yeah, I think that's an interesting narrative. Mm -hmm. It's an important narrative. Yeah, there's more than you would think. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. Yeah, we're not just a socioeconomic problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's the interesting part about this entire study for us. Uh, we're really looking to try to figure out what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy. And there's public perception of certain neighborhoods. And mm -hmm. there's some reality on the socioeconomics that, that contribute to making a healthy neighborhood in terms of you know, income and educational attainment. But what we notice in, in every neighborhood, because we're 
all over the city and all different neighborhoods. And once you get to meet neighbors, you learn that they have vision and you learn they have a history and they know what's going on. And you know what? There's a lot of really great neighbors that have neighborhoods that have a lot going on. The same things that they have going on in some areas that you would think are thriving, happening in places that the public says aren't thriving. Mm -hmm. So what is the difference in that balance? And that's part of what we're hoping to, to really learn through this process so we can begin maybe talking about the narrative different or bringing on the right kind of resources in order to strengthen that or encourage it. Mm -hmm. Not really sure. So we're excited um, to try to figure out truly yeah. what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy. It's yeah, not, well, it comes down to people. I mean, that's mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly the only thing is, is people. You have good people, you'll have more healthy. If you have less good people, you'll have yeah. a less healthy neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and the more that they can learn and uh, over time get to know each other and, and develop relationships... Um, and that's kind of the cords that tie it together. But um, you mean the housing and the infrastructure and all that, that's, in my mind, very secondary mm -hmm. to the people themselves. Mm -hmm. If your neighborhood has only 50% with a high school diploma and you have two bachelor's degrees in the whole neighborhood, who runs your association? Hmm. And... I, I keep hearing, well, when those people show that they care, we can help them. And I'm not hearing that from any officials. I'm hearing it from other community leaders. Well, I can assure you those people care very deeply. They're just at a loss for how to fix this terrible, terrible situation. Yeah. There's no easy answer. Um, and so they end up not doing anything or, oh, that's not going to work. Or it's too hard for them to take on in their daily struggle to get by. Yeah. Interesting. Well, to kind of wrap up this particular podcast, we always kind of in the in the session with this idea of like what makes a good neighbor. So, we'd love to hear from each of you is like what what is a good neighbor? Arlene, what is a good neighbor to you? Somebody that doesn't pick on the other neighbors. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um just making it easier for the good people to live their good lives. Jim, what do you think makes a good neighbor? You know, I think people in general are good. Um, so I kind of start with that premise that everybody there wants to do the right thing. Sometimes the situation applies pressure that maybe their actions aren't what people might consider good actions. But I think in reality, most people want to do the right thing, and, and they are good neighbors. Uh, I think it's just more uh, helping them and getting to know them so that their goodness can be apparent, uh, that they can you know, be a part of things and they can uh, just kind of blossom, I guess, as far as what community developers and people like to see is, hey, this is a, this is a thriving community. Uh, I think all the elements are there. It's just difficult conditions for them to, mm -hmm. to blossom and, and come to the forefront so um, I, I, as far as characteristics I think caring caring about your neighbors caring about your community uh, stability um, I mean that would probably be the main thing just just good people yeah good people make good neighbors Good people make good neighbors. Yeah, 
Um, hopefully we can keep keep going in that way. Sure. And while we're all trying to become better neighbors ourselves. Yeah. Uh, Jim, Arlene, thanks for joining us on the Neighboring Podcast. Thanks for agreeing to be a part of this kind of research project and sharing your time and your energy and coordination with us uh, with the hope that we can we can encourage you and empower and bring some additional resources to Hogan Mastin. We're big fans of your work and your efforts and would love to do whatever we can in Aberlink to, to continue supporting those efforts. So thank you for that. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Neighboring. We've got one more week with uh, this podcast series on what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy. Uh, we'll see you next week.